Hey, this is Dan Reeves. I'm the lead pastor of Journey Church in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Welcome to our podcast. Before we get going, we just want to take a moment to thank you for tuning in. We believe that you matter, not only to us, but to Jesus. Our hope is that you find something new and life-giving in Him today. Here's today's message. Okay, all right. That's all the internal stuff. Now we're going to get into Scripture, okay? All right, if you are new with us, uh, just know this, that a lot of times we'll teach through a, a series of teachings. Uh, it'll be kind of like a packaged group of things. Many times what we'll do is we'll go through a book of the Bible. Uh, we'll just pick out, say, the Gospel of John or the book of Ephesians or something in Psalms, and we'll go straight through that. Uh, but what we're doing over the course of the fall is a little bit different in that we're doing somewhat of a topical series. We're, we're taking different topics and we're talking about those specific things. And we're doing that uh, specifically wrapped around this idea of deep truths. And the reason for that is, is we, we believe that there are some things that provide us some consistency uh, that are not just uh, things that are, are here today, gone tomorrow. But if you look back far enough within the Christian tradition, uh, you begin to find that there's some similarities. There's some things that uh, through the centuries, different places, different denominations that uh, have actually defined what it means to have a, a Christian approach to life, to understanding reality and understanding humanity. And so we've talked about a lot of things. We've talked about uh, scripture itself. We've talked about why do we even look at a Bible? And we've talked about uh, God and Trinity existing in three persons, but being of one substance. And uh, what all that means last week, we wrestled with this, uh, this deep truth that uh, Jesus was fully human and fully God at the same time. Uh, and so you can see like these are some pretty heady things, but they're really important things because they kind of are the things that are beneath the waterline, as you would say, that really begin to tell the tale on all the things that we uh, do in life. They begin to uh, uh, change how we see our relationships, uh, ethical situations. It begins to have view how we, how we see other people and how we look into eternity. And so what we're essentially doing is we're trying to get together around some things things that unify us. And one of the quotes that's been driving this home, it's really just a mindset approach that we always want to have uh, as a church and as people of God. Uh, and, and I want to throw it up here because this is uh, the, the approach to this series. Because sometimes you say deep truths and it's uh, some people it's off-putting to talk about truths. Some people are going, yeah, talk about truth. But we want to have like this posture uh, that I think is emulated in this uh, quote. Uh, it simply says, in essentials, unity, in non essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. That means that uh, we are all human. Uh, we're going to talk about that today. Uh, we're all broken and fallen, and we're trying to wrap our minds around some things. There are some essentials that have to unify us as Christians, and we're going to talk about what those are. There's also some non-essentials. There's some things that in Scripture, uh, uh, good Christian people that love the Lord and love Scripture, they have different opinions on, uh, different interpretations of. And so when that happens, we believe that there's liberty in that, and we learn from each other and we lean in and we don't just get into our fox hose and lob grenades at one another, but we're on the same team. Uh, and then we think this, that there's people that really just disagree with us and you might get mad about that. Uh, that might frustrate you uh, in relationships and things like that, but we are called as Christ followers to treat everyone with charity. Uh, and so this helps us have a posture when we talk about some really important essentials. And so the essential we're going to talk about today is the spiritual lostness of the human race, the spiritual lostness 
of the human race. Now, um, we're going to take a little bit of a different path to get there because, uh, and what I'm going to do today, uh, like the other messages in this series, is going to be a little bit more academic. Um, this is it's a little bit more school than church, you might say, and some of you like that and some of you don't like that. Uh, it's just one of those things that uh, I think we have to be well-rounded in, and so it's going to come off that way a little bit. If you like notes, there's going to be a lot of things for you to write down today, and so uh, I'm going to have a lot of lists uh, in here because it was the easiest way to cover a lot of material in a short amount of time, um, and there's a lot we won't even get to, but we better get the ball rolling. And so what I want to talk about first is I want to talk about just the perspective of what it means to be human, okay? Now, that's a big question. That's a big question. When the Bible was originally written, specifically the New Testament, it was written primarily in a Greek and Roman culture, okay? That was the time uh, that it came uh, into being. That's when God chose to send Christ. That's when, that's the time frame that all that happened. And so that's important to us. That, that means that that was God's sovereign uh, decision to do it at a specific time in a specific culture. Uh, but with that also comes an understanding when we read scripture, we talked about this a few weeks ago, that our first task uh, as readers of scripture is to get in the mindset of the first hearers of scripture. So we don't just kind of look at it from a 2021 perspective or uh, soon to be 2022 perspective. We're doing our best to understand the original context so that we can draw and extrapolate accurately or most accurately as we possibly can an interpretation that honors the Lord and honors scripture. And within Greek and Roman culture, there's some things about human nature that, uh, that they wrestled with, and there were some commonalities. And so I want to give you three real quick commonalities that were uh, present in the period that the New Testament is written, and then we're going to talk about how that thought changed because of Christianity a little bit and how that affects it, okay? So the first one is this, is that human beings are pawns of the gods. Now, if you've studied Greek or Roman um, mythology, uh, you know, they, if you looked at the gods, that they have, they would have, uh, they would have acknowledged that there was a higher power for sure. There's a, uh, it's kind of a slew of different gods in there. And, and the way that they viewed that relationship is that those gods would, would treat uh, you and I, humans, uh, as pawns, and they would kind of get them on their team, and they would use them in their own little battles. And it was this cosmic chaos. And you can see what comes from that. That comes from that, well, depending on which god you worship, uh, or maybe you worship multiple gods because you've got to cover your bases uh, in all these different facets. And so it really did affect and change how people looked at life, uh, how they looked at situations. If you were traveling, you better pray to this particular God for safety or, 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 or you're, in a, uh, you're, giving, you're having childbirth, you, pray, you better pray to this specific God to provide safety in this situation. So you, you were just always kind of on edge, you can imagine. Uh, and so it was a very spiritual context, but it was also a, a very, um, uh, I guess what you would say, it was pretty chaotic context as well. Uh, because there were, there, was these, uh, there were these gods up there, and they were just treating human beings like their own little personal pawns. But that, there was another group of people, and there was another strain of thought that didn't just say that that. They also said that people are actually little gods. Um, and so uh, you can see how this plays out, and it's kind of manifests itself through history in different ways. Uh, but it, it was the idea that you yourself are a little god. You're an entity to yourself. Uh, there is something inherently about you uh, that's divine. Uh, and so some people would say, well, you're a god, you're a god, you're a god. And this was a common train of thought in Greek and Roman 
culture. But not just that, there was also a third one that was a pretty common uh, view, and this was that humanity, or at least some of humanity, had an inner divinity. Uh, And you can see this play out in kind of this ancient uh, idea called Gnosticism, and and it kind of surfaced in a lot of different ways. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, where excuse me, there's an inner divine core, like a spirit or a soul, but there's an external body out here, a physical body, that's actually evil. So you might be inwardly divine, but you're externally uh, evil. And so that's where the war comes in. You can see how this uh, kind of presents this dualism. You might remember or have seen like the old cartoons where you've got like the angel on one shoulder uh, and you've got the devil on the other shoulder uh, and they're suggesting different things to you. And just depending on which one, you like you flick, you know, one off or you flick the other one off your shoulder and you obey the other one. Uh, And there was this idea that, well, you know, you've got this constant tension, this constant war, there's dualism going on. And so your life is played out out uh, inside this war. Now, that's the context that the New Testament was written in primarily. You throw into that a Jewish context that had a, had a belief in uh, a one particular God, a God that uh, was, had revealed or disclosed himself to a group of people, uh, and they called him Yahweh, or they called him Jehovah uh, later on in a Greek context. And this was the God that was a personal God, and he was, a, he was one God. Uh, they were a monotheistic culture, uh, and he agrees, again, He's right, God's right on cue, this whole, this whole sermon. Uh, so inside this, you see all these things peppered in. Well, as time goes on, okay, time goes on, and we move out of the first century, we move into uh, some transitions in thoughts to arrive at where we are today. And it's come up in philosophy, it's come up in science, and certainly in theology. Uh, you might remember something called the Enlightenment. Uh, this was a cultural revolution. Uh, this was saying, it, it was really using a lot of logic, a lot of different things of that nature. Uh, and so the, the pendulum started to swing. Uh, and it wasn't so much about a lot of different little gods anymore or really the metaphysical or the existential it was really about like things can be known uh very rational and those type of things that we were enlightened as a human race and that gave way to a thing called naturalism uh, this was uh, just talking about like kind of the, um, you know, like nature itself, the processes of nature. It was very scientific based. Uh, and and this, this really embraced the thought that there really is no divine core to you. We're just a system uh, following along in this system of natural events. Uh, Darwinism and things like that would maybe uh, derive out of this kind of thought where nature was kind of the highest rule, like these laws of physics and laws of nature, uh, all those type of things. They just ruled uh, our world, and that's really all there is. And then there was a reaction, like in the 19th century and all the way up through the 20th century and today, and there was a recapturing. These are really broad stroke things, but there was a, a, a recapturing of kind of this idealist philosophies and a re-embrace of mysticism. I can remember in the 80s, kind of the New Age movement and things like that. Uh, I think with the onslaught of technology, now uh, there's a lot of people that have a lot of different spiritual uh, beliefs, and there's really not this version as much, I don't sense, uh, to spiritual things, uh, there's really just kind of an embrace of like, well, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And so with all these things, you can see like where there is a Greco-Roman base, a Jewish base of an understanding of things, of human, what it means to be human, or what's happened 
just within the world of human rights is this kind of this understanding that we're trying to wrestle with and continuing to wrestle with. Uh, it pops up not just in Christian circles, right? It pops up in every facet of life, uh, every background. Somebody is wrestling with these core questions. So what are three core questions? I'm gonna give you three core questions <clears throat> today that I think um, surface in all of those, okay? Surface in all of those that I think that the Christian approach and understanding actually gives some answers to, okay? The first key question is this. I'm gonna cough real quick. Question is, are humans essentially mortal or immortal? Now, you might not have woken up thinking about this, but think about it for just a second. Are, are, does it, what does it mean to be human? Are you essentially a mortal being or are you essentially in, an immortal being? Now, this will be something for y'all to talk about in your journey groups and wrestle with, uh, but this is something that is a question that's, that people have come to different um, answers on and still are coming to different answers on. Are you essentially mortal or are you essentially immortal? Now, that's not the only question though. Second question, are humans essentially good or essentially evil? Now, depending on who your family is at Thanksgiving, you might have different answers uh, to this. Uh, are they essentially good or essentially evil? Um, are people, you look at history uh, and you might come to different conclusions. I mean, you might look at some of the most egregious things. You might look at like the Holocaust or something like that. You might look at the Crusades and you say, well, see, they, uh, people are just evil right? Or you might look at some people that have really done some phenomenal things uh, and, and, and even given their lives sacrificially for some really important things. You, you might look at that and say, well, no, there's really some good in people. People are essentially good. How do you wrestle that tension to the ground? Which one is it? And then the third question, I think is an important one, are humans sinners because they sin or do they sin because they're sinners? Now, I don't know which one you come down on on that, but this is a question that has uh, had volumes written about it throughout the centuries. Uh, do people just sin because that's what you're predestined to do and that's what you do? Or do you become a sinner because of your own personal choice and the actions that you take? So you can see these are some really difficult questions. These are some big questions. It's maybe not what you expected when I started talking about the spiritual lostness uh, of the human race, but these are what it means to be human, to wrestle with these questions. These are questions that um, if you have it asked at some point in some manner, you might not word it the exact same way, but you will ask and find answers to these questions. So what are the Christian answers to these questions? I think it's probably good to lay all the cards on the table up front because I think Christianity has a unique approach to these questions. Um, I think the first question, if you look at some key answers to those questions, all right, you're probably gonna have to write a little bit fast. Humans are both mortal animals. That means that we're natural, biological, and finite, and we're transcendentally immortal, or you might just say spiritual and possessing supernatural qualities, okay? So the answer from a Christian perspective is yes, you know, uh, do you want this one or this one? Answers yes. Uh, you are essentially good and you are uh, existentially 
evil. Uh, there are, there's two things going on within you. There, uh, there, there's different things happening. You are both mortal and you are immortal. Uh, you can think about immortality this way. Uh, I mean, uh, it, you have certain physical traits. Uh, there's a chance, there's a good chance that you uh, look a little bit like uh, your mother or your father. And nobody would argue with that or think that's odd. They would say, well, that's just because uh, you have uh, DNA. You have a genetic code that's passed down to you. And that's perfectly, that's perfectly normal uh, and understandable. That's why some of you are really good at athletics is because your genetic code uh, predisposed you that way. And uh, some of you are really bad at athletics because your genetic code predisposes you that way. Some of you the same way with uh, art. Some of you are naturally gifted art or music. And some of that is just kind of a family trait. Your, your, your mom, your dad, or your grandma, your grandpa, they, they, they could sing. And so you just kind of have an ability to sing. And then there's the opposite where passed down to you is an inability to sing. And nobody thinks it's odd. Uh, we embrace that. We understand that. Uh, and that same truth about being mortal that comes with all these inherent things, we would say that the same thing is true spiritually, that the same thing that happened to you mortally happen immortally, that, that the things that makes you who you are, your spirit or your soul, just as you have kind of a, a, a biological inheritance, you also have a spiritual inheritance. There's things that are passed down. Uh, the, the same things that happen to you personally happen socially and culturally, and so that different cultures have different natures and different nuances, and it's what makes us distinct. It's what makes people distinct, cultures distinct, and we would say that they're tied together. This is what it means to be mortal. This is what it means to be immortal. But also, on the second question, are essentially, are, are humans good or bad? Well, they're both. Uh, just as I said, they're both. They're, I mean, they're, there's good and there's, there's bad. And we're going to figure out exactly why is that? Why, why do we see both those things? Well, a Christian answer to the question is you have to embrace the paradox of that. It's not one or the other. It's both and. And then the third thing, for sake of time, we'll move right along, is that humans are both sinners because they sin and they're already sinners uh, and and already sinners causing them to sin. So what's happening with, with our life is sin is both a noun, if you want to say it that way, and sin is a verb. It's a state of being and it's an action. And so you can see like this is why like a, a, a message, a, a short message on, uh, on sin, uh, on the spiritual lostness of the human race, it's probably going to come up a little short uh, because there's so many things to talk about. There's so many different roads to go down, and there's a lot of different interpretations about exactly how all this stuff works. And what we're concerned with today is not all the different interpretations of the nuances and details of it, but where do we find consensus across Christianity? Where do we find consensus across different denominational lines? Where do we find like historic Christians, ancient truths, deep truths resurfacing over and over again? Well, here's the three synopsis points, okay? I told you we're gonna have a lot of lists. Here's the three synopsis points, the, consistent, the consensus on humanity from Christianity. If you, if you went across the board and you didn't just go down and plumb into the depths of the details, here's what you're gonna find. Persons are composed of, body, of both body and soul and spirit. Now, uh, just real quick, 
Uh, I put soul slash spirit because some people are dichotomous and some people are trichotomous. Some people divide the soul and the spirit and their understanding. And some people say, well, it's really the same thing. Um, that's a whole other thing to get into. But essentially, if you wanna look at where there's agreement, everybody recognizes that you have a body and everybody recognizes that you have a soul or a spirit within Christianity. And if you don't acknowledge that, then what that would mean is that you don't really, you're not really rooted in Christian thought, okay? Uh, the second part of that is that special creatures, that humanity are special creatures made in God's image and likeness. Uh, you see this pop out from reformers. You, you see uh, Augustine before them. Uh, you see it today in modern theologians. Like this is consistent that we, are, we have a special relationship with God. We're created in God's image and God's likeness. Uh, the Latin phrase would be imago Dei that we have inherent with us. That's why we value life uh, from beginning to end. Um, this is why every soul is important. Every person is important, no matter of their socioeconomic status or their color. We view everyone as made in the image of God. But then there other, the third understanding is this, is that we're all broken, we're all fallen, but we are all redeemable, okay? So these three things are the three acknowledgments, if you wanna really condense it down for the sake of a Sunday morning sermon, sermon these are three things that there's consistency. Uh, these are deep truths that uh, we find pop up over and over and over again throughout Christian history that really define what it means to have Christian thought when it, as it pertains to the spiritual lostness of the human race. Um, and if you're not a list person, you like more quotes, I wanna throw one quote at you and then we're gonna get into some scripture to kind of show you where, where we're getting some of this. This is Roger Olson, he's a professor at Baylor. He says this, he says, all human beings are both unique and possessed of special dignity and value because they are created in the image of God and are corrupted from birth by a spiritual disease that prevents them from being fulfilled apart from God's saving grace. That, I feel like that's a really good synopsis in a quote form of what it means to look at the human race and our spiritual lostness and understand like this is the reality. Um, we're both unique and we're possessed with dignity but, and we have value because we're created in the image and likeness of God. But we also understand that there is like at our core, this spiritual disease that's entered in. Entered in. So where does all that come from? That's a lot of lists, that's a lot of jargon. Some of you are like, okay, let's just open the Bible and see what it says. Uh, I agree, let's do that. Um, and let's look first at Genesis chapter two. And I wanna make a point first, that first point. I wanna look at the fact that we're both mortal and immortal, okay? And we'll look at one little scripture that uh, suggests this, and then we'll break it out a little bit. Uh, Genesis chapter two, verse seven. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, here's where we find this uh, first suggestion that we're mortal and immortal at the same time. Uh, and you can see the juxtaposition of the two things, the contrast of the two things. We see that God um, in this great crescendo of creation, he, he changes uh, his, his method when he gets to mankind. When he gets to mankind, instead of just speaking things into existence, he gets down in the dust that he's already uh, verbally created. And then he begins to work and to fashion man into his image. But he's not just made of the dust, uh, this man. He's not just physical. He then breathes the breath of life into man, making him both physical and spiritual 
at the exact same time. And this is something that's really unique within God's creation. This is something that um, you, you, people have uh, revisited time and time again from different uh, uh, strains of study and, uh, and academics and, and uh, technology and all these different things to, to be able to wrestle with this tension that is on the first two pages of scripture and in a very ancient book written down and said, well, here's, here's how we view this. We view that God intentionally made beings special in that they're physical, they're mortal, and they're immortal. And this is the context for the world. This is the way the world operates. And this is why we wrestle with these high and lofty thoughts. Uh, it's why we have treasures in jars of clay like we read about earlier. Now, this is the first suggestion of mortal and immortal. The rest of the story of Scripture is the, the brokenness of those two, the estrangement of those two, and then also the reconciliation of those two things, okay? Um, so let's talk about that. Let's move from mortal and immortal. Let's move it to the second part because this is where we're going to spend most of our time is that we're, uh, we're beings that are essentially good, and we're existentially estranged. What does that mean? That means that, the, that uh, at our core, we were made good, and then we became estranged from God from that good, okay? That's a, that's a predominantly Christian understanding of the world and of humanity. So if you look that creation account, okay, if you actually went from Genesis 2 and you just turned back a page, some of you just scanned back up in the past, just depending on how your Bible's laid out. But if you look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, it says that God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Now that's the summation. That's kind of the, the climax, if you will, of everything God created from the beginning to the end. That means that when he created the stars, the sky, the moon, all those type of things, the birds, the fish, and you and me, his statement, when God stepped back over all he created, he looked at it and he said, man, that's very good. He said, I did a good job. Everything began in a state of goodness. And so at the essential nature of you and me is at our core, we are good. That's what we were created for. And the reason for that, we find if we back up into the passage, why could God say it was good? Well, look back up in verse 26 of the same passage because this is how we get there. After God had created all the other things, this passage in Genesis chapter one talks a little bit more detail. It says, then God said, let us make mankind. And, and that's the same word we get the word humans from, okay? Uh, the word in original Hebrew there is Adam. And there's two Adams. There's like the personal name Adam, but then there's also Adam that means mankind or the entire human race, okay? So this becomes like a paradigm for us to understand goodness of the human race. Let us make humans or mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So you can see from the outset, when we get to mankind, humans, men and women, when we get to that point in the story, something different is going on within creation. Um, the biblical uh, framework for understanding this, the Christian framework for understanding this, is that in the very beginning, God created you and I in a state of essential goodness. And that goodness is tied to our purpose, it's tied to our relationship with him, it's tied to uh, our relationship with one another, and it's tied to our relationship with creation itself. 
And you see that play out really quickly in verse 27. In verse 27, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So here's another part of the goodness. God made them male and female this is how he created them. He blessed them. He said, this is what it looks like to be in a, in, in a good environment, in God's good and gracious likeness. This is what he created the world to look like and to embody. And in creating the image and likeness and putting them in male and female, bringing man and woman, he then uniquely tied them together in purpose. And he says, I want you to image me within my good creation. And this, is, this gives God weight to step back and go, man, this is good. There's harmony. There's what the Jews uh, would have referred to as shalom, peace. This is the way things are supposed to be. Things are whole. And they are to rule together uh, in oneness over creation. And he said, this is good. This is the way it's supposed to be, to be caretakers and to cultivate the raw materials of this world that I've created. And so what does it mean? What can, you, what can you pull out? I said it's gonna be lists today. So what are some of the good things that you can pull out from that passage? Well, here, here's another list. The, the man and the woman are distinguished from the rest of created beings, okay? This is a, a consistent Christian thought throughout, um, throughout the centuries that men and women are distinguished from the cows and the birds and all those other things. Now, you might not have needed a scripture to tell you that. Uh, I know some of you, I love my dog. I love our cats. We have two cats and a dog and I love them. And sometimes I we will say things like, I think he thinks he's human, you know? But he really doesn't. That's just us saying that. He really doesn't think that. Uh, he loves us. He wants to be with us. But there's, at the end of the day, um, I'll tell you some of the gross stuff he does. He's not human, you know? Uh, he, the things he does, I'm like, that is not human, uh, what you're doing there. And that's, that's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way God created it to be, right? Uh, this is God's good, gracious design of things. Second thing what it means to be good. The man and the woman possessed a special relationship with God. It wasn't that we were just distinct from all the other animals out there, uh, the other genus and species that we all have. It's not just that we're different. It's that that enables us to have a special relationship to know God, to walk with God, uh, to understand the thoughts of God, um, to have a personal relationship with God. God created you with the ability to do that. That's why the, some, uh, some people in the past have said that you, you've been, you have this God-shaped hole in the, side of, in, in the middle of your spirit that is made that only God can fill because God has created you for eternity. That's why when you, when you go to a funeral, I'm just be honest, that's why it hurts so bad because there's something at your core that says this is not the way it's supposed to be. We were created for more. We long for more. The relationships we have give us the ability to have a relationship with the eternal and that is God himself. But that's not all. The other thing that we find good in that is the man and the woman were unique from one another. God designed it that way. God designed us in such a way that we were not exactly the same. Um, uh, if you follow the, the rest of the passage out, it says that there was a helper suitable uh, for, for Adam and God placed them together in oneness in order to image together. And this is God's good and gracious design for how he created the world to operate. 
And you see all these things beginning to say, okay, this, this provides a framework then, doesn't it? For us to understand what it means to be essentially good. This is what he created humanity for. And then there's two more, real quick. This indicates a situation in an environment where God blessed. This is what God, the way God blessed it. And then the fifth thing is this, is this indicates a special shared responsibility together in his creation that we refer to as mutuality. Now, what is that? That means that God gave the man and the woman, not one or the other, but he gave them in unity and oneness the same purpose within creation. He placed them together as image bearers to come together to image the community of God within creation and to rule and to administrate together within his creation. And this is the good order of God. This is the way God has designed things to be. But something went tragically wrong, right? And this is the second part of, you know, the equation. We're not just essentially good, we're existentially estranged. How did that happen? Well, in Genesis chapter three, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden. I highlighted did God really say, because this is the crux. This is, <clears throat> this is the way scripture tells the story. And de- depending on whether or not, uh, you know, you think, well, the serpent is Satan and it's like a literal snake, or if, uh, you know, some of you may arrive at a point where you say, well, I, I don't think that. I think that this is just using uh, uh, imagery to tell the story and because, very few of us really love snakes. Some of you do, but a lot of us don't. Uh, whatever, wherever you fall on that is really not the, the, the point of the message. What's the point of the message is, is what's highlighted. Did God really say? The insinuation or suggestion to actually challenge the goodness and the authority of God is the turning point and is actually the pivot point between being essentially good and existentially estranged from that reality of that goodness. And so you get the dialogue, right? Because this, this, you know, if you were reading this or you were hearing this the first time, you would have been like, oh goodness, what's, what's about to happen? Well, this is what happens. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit, uh, eat from the tree, excuse me, that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So notice uh, the relationship uh, in, in the conversation. There's a, there's a we there, and then the you there is not a singular you, it's a plural you, uh, that you will die. Um, who are the humans right now, class, that are on the planet at this point? Adam and Eve, right? There's two of them. And who's going to die? Both of them. Uh, both of them. This is going to introduce and, and really tip the scales toward their mortality. It introduces death into life. Why does that happen? It, it happens primarily because they've turned away from the good design of God, the authority of God, and they've turned to the suggestion that they themselves can be God, that you can be equal to God. You can be exactly like God, not in substance, not bearing his likeness, but you can be of the same stature as God. You can be a God yourself. 
And as that story plays out, it really begins to spin out of control. And we get to where we are today because when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for the food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it and she gave also to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Scripture goes out of its way, it seems here, to, to bring the man and the woman together in the process of the fall. To understand that they were together and they were eating together. They suffered the consequences together. They, they tried to come up with their own solutions together. And if you fast forward through the whole thing, uh, through the story of Genesis chapter three, when you get to the end of it, you get to see that everything becomes upended and everything that was essentially good becomes existentially estranged. If you skip down to verse 16, and verse 16 says, to the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. What was created for oneness and goodness now is tension. Now there's death. Now there's anger. There's hatred. There's power plays and all the things. And so from that, you get some key points. We had the points from what it meant to be essentially good, but what does it mean to be existentially estranged? Well, the first one is the temptation and the sin of the man and woman was against God's authority. Okay. It was against God's authority. It was to say, well, you can be God. You can be God. And the second one is this, the man and the woman were united in their guilt by both sinning together as one. That means that not one was more guilty than the other. Matter of fact, when you get to the New Testament, uh, I mean, the representative of original sin, or some people might even call federal headship. There's a lot of different terminologies for this thing. Um, they would say that there was, an, there was uh, sin that entered through Adam, and Jesus is the remedy for that. As sin entered in through one man, uh, righteousness enters into another. But there's oneness in this. The third part uh, that you see in this is the relationship with God was broken. The mutuality and the relationship with one another was broken and creation itself was broken as the image bearers sinned. You see immediately as what are they doing? They're hiding from God. They're sowing fig leaves. They're, they're coming up with excuses. They begin to blame one another uh, to God. Well, it was that woman that you gave me or he did it, she did it, all those kind of things. But what we see in this is that the sum total of that within not just the relationship with God, begins to cascade over into the creation because as image bearers, they have power in creation. What they do, what they decide has more than just personal consequences. It's not, in this situation, the way scripture teaches it, it has, a, it has more to say uh, than just where do you go when you die, though that's a really important question that we're gonna get to, that what it's talking about is that your sin, mankind's sin, Adam and Eve's sin, it cascades over into the mortal world. And just like you would not expect in your life to make a bad decision and not feel practical effects, we should not expect our original image bearers, our forebearers to step into creation and turn away in idolatry from God and not expect that there be a cascading effect both personally from an inheritance standpoint, socially, we experience that, where do wars come from? Well, it become, comes from this. This battle for what was mutual, now it's about power plays. Who's gonna be in charge? Who's gonna rule? 
Now we're trying to get over one another rather than serve alongside one another. And then finally, what do we see? We see the creation itself. Where does disease come from? Well, it comes from here. Uh, where does cancer come from? It comes from here. You know, all these things that we're dealing with now, we are downstream because of the cascading effect. What was essentially created for good has existentially become estranged from that good. And so you see how the tension plays out, right? This is why Christianity embraces both of these realities. And then the final reality is this, is that are we sinners because we sin or do we sin because we're sinners? Well, watch what Paul talks about with this. He takes that idea from Genesis. Remember, he's a good Jew, uh, a Jewish scholar. He's also witnessed the resurrected Christ. And so he's put these pieces together. And when you get to Romans chapter three, he's talking to a church in Rome that was divided. There was a, a group of Gentiles within, Gentile Christians in the church and a group of Jewish Christians in the church. And they were with odds, uh, at odds with one another. And, and so he's speaking into that and he's saying, he's trying to bring them to a common ground. And the common ground that he chooses as his uh, entry point into bringing unity is to say, listen, you're all a bunch of sinners. <laughs> this is why he says it. There's not one group that's not. And he says, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Now, is in, in, this, in this passage, is this a noun, is sin a noun or a verb? Grammar. Huh? Everybody, yeah. All right. It's a noun, right? Sin is a noun. Now, the reason I stop on this is because most of us understand, I think if you're in church or you're from the South, you know, you, you pretty have much have heard that sin is that bad thing you do, right? I think... You know, we probably have more unity on that uh, than we do on other things. If you're going to choose the word sin or not, if you think they're sin or not, you say, well, everybody does bad things. That's an action. That's a verb. But Scripture treats sin not just as an action, but as a noun. That means that it's something that's passed on to you. It's an inheritance that you have. It's a, uh, you might say it's a congenital disease that you have. And, and different theologians through history have come to different terms and tried to wrestle with like, okay, well, does that happen? And then that happens and then that happens. There's a lot of different ways you can go in that. That's where we show liberty and charity toward each other in that. But where we find unity is, it's just like Paul told the church at Rome. Hey, listen, you're a Jewish Christian. You're a Gentile Christian. Well, you know what? The thing that makes us all one family is is that we are all under the power of sin. Why? Because we have the same parents. It all came to us from the same place. Matter of fact, he would have built on that thought in verses 10 and 11 through 12. And he says, as is written, there's none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There's no one who sees God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now that's pretty definitive charge. Um, and it doesn't mean that people can't do some good things. Uh, I think sometimes our modern language gets in the way of this because you're, because some of you, I, I know your question is the same question I would ask. Well, like, does that mean you can't do anything good? Like, you know, you I mean, if you help somebody, I mean, that's good. Isn't that good? Doesn't that contradict that? Well, it's not really saying that there's not an ability to do some things that are good. It's really talking about the ability to be good. 
to consistently be someone that is a version of the original design. That's why there's a paradox because there are flashes. Uh, I, I know a lot of non-Christians, I'm just be honest with you, that I think may be nicer people than Christians. Is anybody with me on that? You've met some, right? I'm like, man, they're just really good people. And I will use that. And it's true. I mean, they're going to care for you. They're going to they're give to you. They're going to take care. They're going to be involved. But that's not really what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about this existential, this eternal thing that is a noun, that is a part of who we are as the human race. Why? Because collectively, we are all collectively lost. Now, how you play that out when, you know, are you lost and, you know, um, are you predestined or you have free will? That's a whole other message that would be really fun to have sometime uh, and would really test our ability to show charity to one another. Um, but it would be a really good conversation to have, but it's not this conversation. This conversation is about the fact that all of us know, don't we, that there is good to be had in the world, that there is better. And we all know that we all find futility in pursuing it. I mean, not just you, but as a society. Man, we just get so frustrated. We, how do you fix what's going on in this world? How do you fix poverty? How, how do you fix all the things that are happening in your own family? How do you fix the things that are happening in our society? How, how do you do that? Well, ultimately, what we have to have is something more. We have to have a mercy that's more than what we can orchestrate ourselves. Why? Because we're not God. And so how does that happen? Well, it's the cliffhanger because uh, I'm out of time and you're like, okay, I need some hope, <laughs> you know? Well, come back next week and we'll get you a little dose of hope after Thanksgiving, okay? Uh, Romans 5, 19. Let's just give this as a little bit of a, a, of a carrot out there for next week. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. So also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. There is hope, isn't there? That's why we gather together is because if that part's not true, then there isn't really hope. There's just futility. And we are firm believers here that there is hope for you as an individual and there's hope for society. There is hope for God's creation. And we wanna be a part of the story as he reconciles and restores every bit of it. Hopefully there's a lot of stuff for you guys to discuss in your journey groups. Uh, if you haven't had one, if you don't have one, we would love to get you connected to uh, move from this monologue to a dialogue where you can really wrestle with some of these things and, and have an interchange of ideas around this, around scripture. And so if you don't have one, stop by the Welcome Center uh, today on your way out. Uh, but before we do that, uh, I'm gonna pray over you. And if you've got spiritual questions, if this has prompted something in you where you want to talk to somebody about how you can find the answers to the problems you're dealing with, then immediately after this, just go to the Welcome Center. We would love to talk talk with you in more depth about uh, Jesus and the hope that he is. I'm going to pray and then we got a quick, quick announcement and then uh, we'll let you get to your journey groups. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much today for uh, your grace. We thank you that you did create us uh, to be your image bearers. Um, Lord, we did turn away from you. Each of one of us has uh, turned to our own way, but even while we were yet powerless, you came to us. And so we thank you, God, for your goodness and that you meet us in our brokenness. 
I pray for those that today are struggling with that and have questions about that. I pray, Lord, you give them courage to enter into a deeper conversation um, with uh, somebody here, a trusted friend. But I pray also, God, that right now, for those that need to call out to you in faith, to put their faith and trust in you, that right now where they sit, you would give them the courage to confess that they too are sinners, to confess faith in you, and to begin a relationship with you to restore their soul. In Jesus' name, amen.